Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Our question this time is, do I always have to be the one who says no? Well, I don't think that the compliance officer always has to be the person that says no. I mean, we can leave that to the general counsel. Just kidding. But we often find ourselves in difficult situations where people come to us uh, after things have gone along for a while or gotten to a point where decisive action seems like it would be necessary. And the more obvious direction to go is usually to say no. I think there are a lot of reasons for this. One is that for better or for worse, compliance officers are very pragmatic. We're a glass half empty sorts of folks, typically speaking. And so we're constantly thinking of the worst case scenario. And that's partly because oftentimes we don't get involved until the worst case scenario is right around the corner or already happening. Also, I think it's in our nature to think of the potential downsides. But it's not just the role of compliance officer that causes you to think in no terms. It's general human nature to respond with a difficult situation with no. Example that I can think of in my personal life right now is my wife and I have three younger children. Two of the three are pretty good swimmers. Our youngest is only 18 months old, so she is certainly not pool safe at this point. So we have said a big no to having a pool at our house. Our two oldest boys certainly are careful to tell us every summer here in Texas how important it would be to have a pool in the backyard. When you think about it, uh, as the people responsible for the pool and for pool safety, there's a significant downsize. It's certainly much harder to have a pool. There's maintenance, other costs. There is the potential for a disaster. So it's very easy to say no. But If you think about it on the other side, there is a huge benefit to morale to having a pool in the backyard. Even though there's some costs involved, even though there's some danger involved, there's certainly something in having it that creates a benefit for our family. But it's very easy to say no. And we have said no, at least for now. But we haven't said no to everything. We said yes to a water slide. We have a pretty neat inflatable contraption that you hook up to the hose and into an electrical outlet and voila, you have a water slide in your backyard. It's appropriate for our kids at this age and it still has its dangers, but it is comparatively less risky given the total circumstances that we face as a family right now. So while we were the parents that said no, to a pool, we were the parents that said yes to the water slide, and that's going to have to do for now, but we have some benefits to morale without having to say no completely. Now, uh, when you're talking about it in the compliance context, why you don't want to be perceived as the no person, at least exclusively the no person, is so that people feel comfortable coming to you with any questions or concerns. Obviously, being the no person makes it less likely that that person that's on the fence who knows what the right thing is but is conflicted because there are benefits and there are dangers, so it's not a clear-cut case, they don't know exactly what to do, and they need counsel, they need help. 
being known as the no person makes it less likely that they're going to come to you and decide to involve you. An example of this that I'm familiar with goes back about a decade back in Houston, Texas at the time when Houston was a center for over-the-counter energy trading. This is in the wake of the Enron scandal, which involved some trading concerns along with the accounting frauds that brought the organization down. But there were many, many players in the energy trading market in Houston. And one of these players had a trading desk where there were some trading strategies that were being employed that, shall we say, were at least problematic. These trading desks typically have a half dozen, give or take, individuals. People that would be at the desk would be the traders themselves, some risk analysts, and other associated personnel. For most organizations, there was also a compliance officer or several compliance officers that were also either on the floor or adjacent to the floor that were involved or were meant to be involved in the trading process. Sometime after these particular trades occurred that were being reviewed by regulators, sometime later, I had the opportunity to hear the testimony of the traders and the risk analysts that worked on this desk. And when the topic came up as to why they did not go to the compliance officer that was assigned to their group, they uniformly answered in the same or similar way. What they said is, we weren't entirely sure that what was going on was right, but we certainly weren't sure that it was wrong. It was a question, but we knew from past experience that the compliance officer always said no. So we knew they weren't a person we could go to to ask about it because they would just shut it down. So this activity that caused the organization to have to spend millions of dollars and answer regulatory inquiries for several years, shook up the lives of a couple of dozen employees. This all went on for over a year before it was discovered by other means internally and reported to the regulators. So for over a year, these individuals that were working on this trading desk had some questions, and it was more than one. It was several of them that had questions. But they were not comfortable going to the compliance officer because they felt that the compliance officer would unilaterally say no without hearing out what the pros and cons, if you will, of this trading strategy was. Now, it could have been that the compliance officer would still have to say no. The moral of the story is certainly not that you say yes always and that you bless everything and be the person that's uh, not any kind of gatekeeper. But the perception that you will always say no under any circumstances will cause people not to approach you. So what's the answer? Well, I think there are several ways to approach this. One is, going back to the last example, the compliance officer really wasn't as ingrained in the culture of the trading desk as perhaps he or she could have been. But another thing that I think could have been helpful. There's this notion that comes out of comedy improvisation, particularly the second city in Chicago, of yes and. Some of you may have heard of this concept before. The idea is that when you're having discussions, when you're trying to collaborate, when you're working with your coworkers and other stakeholders, instead of approaching a question or query or statement by someone else with no, you approach it with yes and. You open up the discussion. 
So it's not a unilateral yes. Uh, yes, I agree with you. Go ahead, go forth and do what you're going to do. It's yes and let's also consider this or yes and well, have you thought about X? This is a good approach because first, it makes you more approachable. <laughs> Opening with no just closes those doors. Opening with yes doesn't make you the barrier anymore. Second, this can provide unexpected results and sometimes very practical results because you're opening up the dialogue and it's no longer a mandate just from the compliance office. It's a collaborative effort with the people that are in operations. So when you say yes and whatever follows, they are going to come back to you and the process becomes a back and forth and can garner some results that you can't even expect. Now, some of those results may not be actionable, but some of them may lead you in a direction that has a solution that you would have never thought of otherwise. So next time, instead of jumping right to no, consider yes and. Because if we want to be an effective ethics and compliance professional, we just can't be the person who says no. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on compliancebeat.com. Now here's the upshot. The upshot this time is no, you don't have to be the person that always says no. Use communication tools such as yes and theory to create a conversation between yourself and your audience about compliance and ethics at the organization. Be open and be collaborative. You never know where it might take you. Today, we have three questions with Richard Bistrong. Richard is the CEO of Frontline Anti-Bribery LLC and has spent much of his career as an international sales executive and currently consults and speaks on foreign bribery, ethics, and compliance issues from that frontline perspective. Richard was the vice president of international sales for a large publicly traded manufacturer of police and military equipment, which included residing and working in the UK. In 2007, as part of a cooperation agreement with the United States Department of Justice, Richard assisted the United States, the UK, and other governments in understanding how FCPA bribery and other export violations occurred in international sales. Since resolving his case, Richard now consults, writes, and speaks about current frontline anti-bribery and compliance issues. Richard was named one of Ethisphere's 100 Most Influential in Business Ethics for 2015 and is a contributing editor for the FCPA blog and speaks and writes on topics of corruption and compliance extensively. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate the introduction, and thank you for asking me to join your podcast series today. Thank you. Can you talk about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role? So my career journey started with a family business, manufacturing bullet-resistant vests, what we often call bulletproof vests. And that was sort of my entry into the aerospace and defense field. But Eric, mostly focusing on U.S. sales, U.S. law enforcement, U.S. military, what we might consider to be low corruption risk, you know, very organized procurement systems and civil service. So it was sort of a low risk environment. And even after we sold the family enterprise in the early 90s, I continued in that role for what was then a competitor, but with a much more diverse portfolio of products, again, focusing on U.S. law enforcement, U.S. military sales. But in 1997, as this company was publicly traded, 
you know, rapidly growing. And, you know, with each acquisition, Eric, came a little sliver of international business. So by the late 90s, through acquisition and organic growth, the company was going to go ahead and hire a VP of international sales. And I had some foreign policy background from my academic side, having a master's degree from the University of Virginia, Woodrow Wilson School of Government. So, Eric, I thought that's like the dream job. I can fuse together my foreign policy credentials along with my business success developed in the U.S. marketplaces. So I was like, that's the job for me. And so in 1997, I started traveling around the world. I was overseas for about 250 days a year through the next decade and focusing on global sales, mostly through third parties and intermediaries and lived in the United Kingdom for part of that time as the companies had operations there. So my exposure, Eric, was to public officials, Ministry of Interior and Ministry of Defense through third parties and intermediaries. Well, fast forwarding a decade later, 2007, in the wake of the United Nations oil for food investigation, the UN set up a procurement task force that was looking at an intermediary that was involved in a food contract. Nothing that had to do with me or my former employer. But what the UN investigators quickly saw was my name popping up on a lot of emails because that same intermediary also held a defense contract with me, um, body armor for UN peacekeepers. So like we still see now, Eric, you know, the epicenter of my investigation and issues started with the third party. So the UN investigators turned over their findings to my former employer, which dismiss me, and but they also shared their findings with the Department of Justice. So after being dismissed in 2007, I get called in by the DOJ as the target of a criminal investigation relating to the FCPA. I knew I was in a great deal of trouble, not just on the UN, but other bribery schemes in which I engaged in. I wasn't thinking about taking my case to the courtroom to a judge and jury, and I ended up cooperating for five years three years in an undercover capacity, two years in trial preparation and being a cooperating witness. And we also hear a lot today, Eric, about carbon copy prosecution. Well, it's very real because that nearly happened to me in the United Kingdom as I was going to get charged there for similar conduct at the time I was living there. So I ended up cooperating with the City of London Police and the Crown Prosecution Service. Fast forward, um, as you know from your criminal defense days, at the end of a plea bargain comes the sentencing. Uh, I was facing five years. The judge gave me 18 months, of which I served 14 as the result of my extensive cooperation. I get home in 2013, in December, after serving my 14 months at the federal prison camp in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. And this is a How'd I get here? Part of the answer is, you know, I deep dived into the internet and looked at the anti-bribery compliance world. And I saw a very robust, well-experienced and resourced field of practitioners from the law perspective, audit, investigations, you know, forensics, analytics. But what I didn't see Eric was really much of a discussion about the, what actually happens out there. The human consequences. The human consequences. You know, in Texas, you have Harold Jack Stanley, right? Sentenced, you know, from KBR. I mean, these are, myself including, well-educated, well-compensated professionals that certainly didn't need to risk their liberty mm -hmm. um, by 
breaking the law. So what's happening? What's it like in the field? The human consequences, the behavioral consequences, what are people thinking? What are they confronting? What are the rationalizations at the front lines of business? So I felt there was a need to talk about that from a compliance perspective and also from an audit perspective. I mean, Eric, I pled guilty to bribing a Dutch police official for a law enforcement contract. I doubt the Dutch police made anybody's risk maps in recent years. So, you know, I don't think there's such a thing as no risk. And I think a risk-based audit process can miss risk. So I just started sharing, you know, real world stories, real world perspectives, and hope that, you know, particularly for corporations that maybe I'm raising some elements that some of their own teams on the front lines might not be talking about so that compliance can better engage with their workforce to calibrate their programs to the real world risks that their teams face and hopefully create a team of compliance ambassadors. So apologies for the long answer, but but that's what got me to this podcast today. Yeah, no, it's it, it, it's your it's your journey, and that's what uh, we're interested in. The second question is, if you could go back in time and tell your younger self one thing before you held your current role, what would that one thing be? It might be hard to limit it to one thing, but what would the if there's one central thing? What would that be? Remember what's important: family, loved ones, and the networks of personal relationships that we have. And I think you know, living, traveling, working overseas, I disconnected from those networks. For me, you know, when I indexed the benefits of engaging in corruption, those were very real. The paycheck, a bonus, a forecast, the consequences, the risks of getting caught for society, for myself, for my family, those were abstract. And when people ask me that question that, you know, when I'm working with corporations, the first thing I share is, When you're struggling with a decision, call home. Talk to your loved ones, hear the voices of families and friends, because if you make the wrong decision, that's the voice you're going to lose. You know, men call compliance, but don't ever lose, you know, the importance of the people in your life. And that I think is very easy to forget when you're working far away from home. And lastly, if you could peer into your crystal ball, what one or two trends in compliance and ethics do you think will be important over the next few years? You know, I think it's, and I'm looking forward to meeting you at the Compliance and Ethics Institute. And, you know, it's something that I just raised the question during my discussion group is, does defensible compliance mean understood compliance? So we see no shortage of discussion about what is the DOJ or SEC looking for if there's trouble, right? What what does our compliance program need to have? But I think we're starting to see a shift toward what do we need to engage our workforce so that our compliance and ethics programs are embraced and understood. I think it's fantastic that the SEC is bringing Professor Francesca Gino into lead a keynote. She wrote a wonderful book called Sidetrack, How Our Decisions Get Derailed. So I really do see a trend toward, let's understand what the behaviors are. Let's look at the research so we know how we can tip our workforce to the right side. Eric, you referenced a wonderful piece in LinkedIn from NPR about the millennial workforce and how ethics and meaningfulness is such an important part of what 
people are looking for in terms of the corporations that they're working for. And I think that's much different than our generation and our parents' generation, which was, you know, much less of a focus on culture. So Mm -hmm. I really see that behavioral trend, um, particularly in the context of the millennial workforce, as being taken much more seriously in terms of what do we need to do beyond a set of rules, policies, and procedures to motivate our workforce. Well, I can't thank you enough for spending a little bit of time with us today, Richard. It's my pleasure, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.